Courthouse. If I deserve death, Mr. Partridge, then you deserve much, much worse. You're right. We're both monsters. For all the wanton women and faithless men out there, this is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, your unofficially official Nosferatu after show. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Anna Hoagie. Do think of me at Christmas time, won't you? <laughs> yeah, this guy's got flair. He's definitely got flair. Tonight, we're talking about episode seven of season two of Nosferatu, Cripple Creek. This week's amazing episode is a first for writer Ray Pamatmat, and is also the first of the two-episode block directed by Trisha Brock. They kind of make a good team this week. The writing here was super, super crisp. I think it gave Bing and, and Manx in particular, and Millie and, and Cassie, those two pairings in particular really stood out today. And I think it was, or tonight, and I think it was the crisp dialogue that made that possible. I mean, the, these guys really brought it to life with their acting. Really, a lot of it starts with what's on the page. Uh, big shout out to them. Make sure you stay tuned after we're done breaking down tonight's episode seven, because we have a fantastic interview with Miss Millicent Manx herself, the lovely Matea Comforti. You do not want to miss it. She is a delight and a total pro. Real joy to talk to her. We had a great time. Just super pleasant, super positive. Definitely stick around. But look, as we dig into this, man, this might just be the cringiest, rapiest episode of Nosferatu yet. I mean, as we've mentioned before, it's just a testament to how this show is not afraid to go there. I mean, they really keep those more depraved moments that are from the book. And they kind of even push them further at times, as we see in Cripple Creek specifically. Yeah, I think one thing the show has really done well, and in, in not always true in adaptations, is they have taken some of the darkest moments of the book and really have pushed it forward in a lot of ways it is even more disturbing when you see it on screen because you're left to your own imagination, right? When you read a book, you picture in your mind's eye the words you're reading and, and even, even the most detailed scene setting comes down to your brain forming the picture of what you're reading. And so you're going to do some natural editing and self-censoring based on what you find offensive or, or too, too much, no matter what you read. Your brain will only kind of process what it wants to when it's creating this image. When you're seeing it and your eyeballs are being fed the images and being fed the innuendo and, and the gas mask coming down and talking about your sweet mouth and, and talking about Mr. Tim and, oh, the wind he's coming back and he's got his suspenders, he's pulling up. Like, those are images you cannot forget. They leave a mark and, and your brain is powerless to resist them entering your skull. And I think also that's because of the emotion. You're seeing these characters and these this emotion that maybe you don't always fill in as deeply when you're reading a story of this nature. Bringing it to life, and I think in general, it just it hits you in a much different way. 
Yeah, this was a powerfully thematic episode about lost innocence and fills in some much needed gaps and holes in Charlie's backstory. You know, I, I think it really fills out the rest of the picture of his backstory that we got started in Goodfather, where he was an adult. But here, obviously, he was a child. So much of who he, Charlie Banks becomes, you can really now see a beeline back to the events of his life with his mother and with Mr. Tim and his friends, the, you know, the local mining town children during the events of this episode from his obsession with saving children quote-unquote saving children why he keeps millie trapped inside christmas land as a perpetual little girl who can never grow up who can never be an adult the origin story of his feeling that women are you know whores and betrayers just and just the idea that adult being an adult is a dirty four-letter word you really see all of that origin here tonight which i remember after good father we talked about how this that was a great episode with you know describing Charlie and how he came to be, but I think this was really important information to get to kind of fill in the rest of that picture. What did you think? It sort of explains his vitriol for women, and I think it's really interesting how we now know that Manx murdered both his own mother and, by extension, his wife. So, I mean, he took out the two most important women in his life. So it's almost like how perfectly appropriate is it that the one person now who seems to be most equipped and determined to take him down is also a woman. And it's, you know, it's sort of just the very thing that Manx hates and fears the most. I think we're going to dig into this a little bit more as we we, we kind of get into the episode here. And I think one thing to definitely keep in mind as we go through this episode, in particular when we go through the backstory part of the episode, is is to think about whether or not Charlie is more sympathetic at the end of this episode. And if not more sympathetic, do you at least have a better appreciation, a better understanding for his point of view and from where he is coming? You know, maybe you still don't agree with his tactics. I hope most people don't still don't agree with his tactics. But, you know, so often serial killers and murderers murder without a reason that we can understand. You know, it's all an internal logic in their own head that we can't really get a feeling for what what they're thinking when they're doing what they're doing, if they even have an idea of what they're doing when they're doing it. I think after this episode, you have a very clear understanding of Charlie's motivations, oh, why, yeah. he, why he does <laughs> what he does and how he goes about it. Uh, you know, you may not like him anymore. You may not feel any more bad for him, but you definitely understand him a lot more. So the episode opens up with taking us back from the end of when Bing is abandoned by Manx, you know, at the lake house, uh, Charlie drives off with Wayne and we see Bing kind of get left in and he kind of runs off. So the episode opens with that scene and then kind of fills in the gaps of time, you know, all the way up to and including when he gasses Charlie and, and drags him away, which is how last week's episode ended. What did you think of the, are you there, God, it's me, Bing, a speech, you know, and, and keep in mind, he, he talks to God about how he's a great guy and then kills a cemetery worker for no reason, literally seconds later. It was really kind of insane, kind of like, let's see, in the short amount of time in the opening, we see a pigeon shit in his mouth, and then he murders the cemetery worker. So if this was ever an example of something escalating quickly, I would certainly say this opening would uh, be a contender. But one thing I also really noticed was how lovely the score was in this scene. And I just want to make a mention, since I don't think we have yet, it's just overall this season has had a really incredible score. I'm going to personally go back and rewatch just to sort of pay more attention to the little intricacies and, and the way it interacts with the moments of the show because it's really really well done really gorgeous 
if you ever want to fully appreciate how important music is to any kind of medium, you know, movies, but, but TV shows, especially because we don't talk about it enough. We talk about music score movies a lot, or people talk about scores in movies a lot, but we don't talk about it in television nearly enough. No. Find an editing program that allows you to remove the music track from your average TV show. You will find most of your favorite TV shows, most of your favorite episodes of TV shows, a thousand times less interesting, less engaging, less heart-stopping, all in all, much worse. The music adds so much tension. It it tells you how to feel without telling you how to feel. Exactly. It operates on a really subconscious level, and it's so, so important. And this show, with the tension, the quiet moments that it does, the music becomes so important. It adds in a very tangible emotion that complements what you're seeing on the screen this show has a lot of quiet moments of menace you know you know that that depend on face acting or just body language the music fills in those gaps you can tell the mood of a scene in this show so well just by the music that's happening in the background yeah it's it's there to cue us in to to sort of help us understand we might should be feeling in, in that moment. But also, you know, uh, moving forward, as we sort of see what happens to Manx when Bing gasses him, what a bizarre dynamic. I mean, how fascinating was it seeing Bing in control and then Manx, like, helpless and begging? And did you personally, did you think that this was it for Manx and that Bing was really just going to fuck him up? Or did you think that mm, eventually Manx would get the upper hand somehow? How did you think this was going to go when it started off? I thought Manx would make it out in the end. We still have three episodes left to go. So I don't know we could go three hours without Charlie Manx. He's kind of important to (laughs) the show. Good point. That being said, I thought that this would be a, thought this might be the end of Bing. I thought this would be an episode where, where it works out. One of them walks away from this, yeah, and one doesn't. And yeah. so I thought I figured it would be Bing <laughs> who didn't walk away with, you know. But it, he really had him down. And if not for a couple of bad decisions and a couple of bad breaks on Bing's part, Bing saves the day here. Really, I mean, he, yeah, he's ninety eight point five percent successful. If not for Wayne being a little bit of a stinker at the end of the episode, Bing is successful in ending the terror of Charlie Minx and the Wraith here so i give him a lot of credit he is not he is not a mensa member by any stretch of the imagination but he really finally gets the upper hand on charlie in a really foolproof kind of way charlie really needs to rely on luck and his pleading with wayne the last vestiges of control that he had over wayne in those moments to save his skin here as much as bing wants to get to christmas land it becomes apparent in this episode that bing really wants to be a partner he really sees himself as a partner, maybe not as an equal, but he sees himself as a partner with Charlie Manx. He, he makes a really good plea for himself that over all the assistance Charlie has maybe had in the past, none of them have saved his life like he has. You know, he literally saved Charlie's life, literally brought him back to life. He found the wraith. He stayed loyal for eight years. And he finally gets that validation from Charlie, right? Charlie finally says the words he wants to hear. He's like, we are partners, Bing. Let's go to Christmas land. And then Bing is kind of back on board, right? Charlie finally has kind of uh, swami swayed him to, to, you know, put him back under the hypnosis of his power. But when he sees Wayne or hears Wayne crying in the wraith and the whimpering and that sad sound that he's making in the back, Jason David's making in the back of the wraith, what do you think changes for Bing? Bing has raped countless people. 
Bing has killed countless people. Why do you think Wayne crying in the Wraith finally breaks him? It was kind of an amazing moment. And I think because Bing has sort of started to see through Manx in, in all of this situation. And sort of even though Bing is this horrible person and he's done all these god-awful things, I think it's showing that he kind of still has some sort of a heart. I mean, if you remember back, he was once Vic's friend. They used to share comic books. And he was just sort of a, a doofy guy, a janitor. So I think that there is a genuine care for the kids but you know kind of like you said he's kind of been under this spell of manx and and has just kind of been blinded by this desire to go to christmas land and you know ride the coasters and have the milkshakes and the gumdrops and it's just been this because he's so childish it's just been this magical possibility for him to become real and now he's sort of coming out of that haze that he's been in this fog and he's actually he sees that they're actually hurting these kids he sees wayne suffering it's kind of an amazing situation he says the wraith is making him cry yes exactly Bing comes back into the garage and he finally, finally has worked out the process and calls Charlie on it. I was floored that he kind of finally all put it together and he's working it out as he's talking about how the kids get sicker or more in pain as Charlie gets better. Yeah. And Charlie kind of, you know, he comes up with some weak excuses. Were you surprised that Charlie admits to the kids going undergoing some discomfort? I was I was kind of floored by that, that he actually finally admitted that. I don't think he had a choice but to fess up to Bing that this is sort of part of the process. But in true Charlie fashion, I mean, he's trying to spin everything. He's just continuously trying to put it in a way where they're the heroes. Sure, the kids are going through a little bit of discomfort, but in the end, they're being saved. It's up to him and Bing to do this because they're like each other. They're both children unsaved. They've both had their innocence stolen. And now it's their job to make sure these other kids can be kids forever. It's, again, he's, he's that carnival barker. Maybe not the best in this moment, but he's doing his best. <laughs> I mean, Cassie describes it for us perfectly when she says once he died and then came back to life, his mental faculties haven't been the same. The the reason the Christmas land has been having its electrical supply, you know, so flaky with the lights, you know, blinking on and off. The re reason everything feels unstable. Cassie says it kind of perfectly to, to Millie, right? She says that he's unstable. His mind is literally kind of falling apart. And I think it kind of explains we've we i feel like the last three episodes we have talked about how he seems unhinged compared yeah, to his normal self definitely. how he's how he seems flustered and can't regain his composure in the past whenever he got flustered the few times we saw him actually ruffled he always regained his composure very quickly and he really hasn't yet and to the point where he is chained to this pole in this garage the entire episode he is at bing's literal mercy this entire episode it's fascinating oh yeah 100 percent. like i said it's it's a power dynamic that we just really haven't seen at all in the whole series that had me on the edge of my seat basically once bing's put it together about what the wraith and charlie are actually doing to the kids it's, it's almost kind of like the straw breaking the camel's back in a lot of ways we already talked about how the show went there in this episode in a couple of different ways but i think we have to talk about this rape scene between or this implied rape scene between 
because we don't actually see it on camera, between Bing and Minx. Because I, I think it's important for both characters. One, I think we got the maybe most disturbing, terrifying Bingism, or certainly the most graphic Bingism of all time when he says, bitch, bitch, go to sleep, take a nap while I love you deep. Ugh! Holy! I mean, ah! when, you combine, <laughs> when you combine that with, you know, teaching Paul Demeter to, or I think he says Paul Demeter, but I think he meant Nathan Demeter. It's also too. Yeah, he he says he says Paul, but I think he means Nathan because Mike is the son. I think yeah. it's Nathan Demeter, but I'm I'm pretty sure he says Paul in the episode, or at least the episode that we saw. Okay. Who knows if that'll be in the final cut? You know, he taught he talks about how he taught him to be a good dad, and I guess to be a good dad for Bing is the dad knows how to use his mouth in a fellatio good way. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting criteria that I've never been presented with as a father, but probably good for the good thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i think i think for most dads that's that's you know you definitely want that to be a good thing but thumbs up (laughs) but he says you know he taught him how to use his mouth and and he'll teach he could teach charlie banks too talk about reversal of power dynamic as he's pulling down that gas mask oh how disturbing was this scene for you okay can you ever unsee this scene not really it just wiggles wiggles and ugh. i was just kind of just ball of nerves the whole time because really it's it's sort of you've got manx zachary quinto doing the old man voice so wonderfully just uh pathetically pleading for being not to rape him and then being delivering those lines ugh, so sinister i mean i, I was kind of shaken inside you know but there's some also kind of clever stuff going on you just the fact that Bing made the point to tell Manx he's a bad father. I mean, that kind of played off of the earlier episode titles, you know, bad mother, good father. And it just sort of brings it all back around to so, so much in this story involving parents and kids and rape and murder. <laughs> it's just like very disturbing, extremely uncomfortable themes just kind of swirling around in this story. And honestly, I really expect nothing less from Nosferatu. I just had no idea what, what was going to happen from moment to moment with this tension, especially between those two. Does Banks have a good point at the end where he's making the point to Bing that if he is a monster for what he does to the children, what on God's green earth does that make Bing, who is raping fathers? He makes the point to say that the Demeter kid was never in the, he wasn't in the graveyard of what may be. Bing just took him. Bing just, you know, raped this this kid's dad for no reason. It wasn't called for. All of the things that he's done, all of the moms that, you know, I love you, Bing Partridge. How many times we heard that in season one as he would gas the moms after the kids had been taken away? All of those depraved acts. I think Charlie is, is making a decent point here that Charlie is a monster to be sure. But if he's a monster, is Bing some kind of much, much worse monster? What, what did you think? Was that a persuasive argument for Charlie in, in a last-ditch effort? I think it seemed to be because Bing kind of stopped to think about it. And I, and I think it kind of made him realize that, yeah, maybe he's not really any better. I mean, what he did to his own parents and his whole idea of him constantly wanting Manx to say, you know, I love you, Bing, Partridge. Like, repeatedly wants him to sort of say this. And it's, it just makes you think, you know, it's something he wanted from his own dad that never got but that that's a recurring theme though from the women that he would rape in season one though too because a couple of times they were resistant to say it under the guest i think when he guesses vic she's resistant to say it and he has to kind of force the issue i think that's part i think it stems really from his mother and his father for sure well yeah it's what his mom said 
yeah, that's a character trait that they really established in season one, that when he gasses you, he really wants you to tell him that you love him being Partridge. It's so fucking disturbing. I just think it means a little bit more because Manx is kind of almost a surrogate father to him at, at this point. I mean, Manx is kind of taking him under his wing and made these promises of reward and trying to kind of teach him how to be this good henchman, basically. And Bang willingly accepted that part. So, yeah, maybe it's sort of both kind of mixed in. He does say it about the women and the men that he's going to gas and then be involved with in some way. Because if I remember it correctly, I think his mom said, I love you, kind of right before raped her and killed her. Maybe just something that he kind of has to replay. Oh, I almost don't want to, like, dig into his mind too much. You know what I mean? (laughs) I need to take a shower after I think about this. Nothing good will come from digging into his mind. (laughs) I've watched ahead at this point. I couldn't resist. I had to finish the episodes. So I've actually seen to the end. I'm, I'm admitting that now on air. So I don't want oh, to answer this question. Shame on you. So, so I'm going to ask you, when he sticks him with that fucking piece of iron and puts it in his gut, uh, are are we losing Bing? Is this Bing Swansong? I mean, he made it to the end of episode seven. That's a pretty good run for two seasons for a series regular. It's not out of the question that Bing Partridge is a done and done deal here. Uh, also, is it just me or is does Charlie change age and de-age extremely rapidly now uh, based on whether or not the Wraith is running uh, it seems much more out of whack than it used to be. And I had a I had a question for you whether or not you think that relates to him also dying and coming back. The process seems very different than it used to. Yeah, I definitely think that it's different. I, I, I heard those sound effects and loved those sound effects, um, the kind of crunching sound that was kind of happening off screen to clue us in to know that he's de-aging as Bing is trying to run away. So that was a really, really fun I, I'm kind of still on the fence because just like we talked about last week when, you know, somebody gets stabbed or shot in the gut and you don't see them completely die on screen, that's room for them to still come back. So there is a chance that Bing could be alive still. At the same time, like you were saying, I kind of feel like through this whole fight, it was one or the other in this episode it really could go either way i mean god it really feels like this is a confrontation that has been two seasons coming between these characters this is dari olifson and zach quinto maybe at the height of their acting as it relates to the relationship of bing and charlie i don't know that we've ever had a more fraught episode between these two characters i mean they've had ups and downs and they've had they've had differences of opinion and and bing has uh been thrown out of the wraith numerous times but never to this this is a really heightened confrontation in this episode and it really seems like the series had been building to this this was inevitable so i kind of with you that it really feels like one walks out you know like like a death cage match in wrestling like one walks out and one doesn't and that was kind of how it felt one leaves this junkyard and one doesn't i don't know i don't know what the what the right prediction is. I mean, I do know, but but based on how this episode ends, I don't know what the right feeling is. He says you'll die here or the cops will find you first. So part of me wants the cops to find him, him to kind of rot in jail. I mean, he was trying to kill himself. You know, that would be an even greater punishment if he had to sort of stay alive and continue to basically atone for everything he's done in a cage for the rest of his life. 
But I digress. <laughs> let's let's finish the junkyard stuff before we dive into Millie and we dive into the backstory of a party episode. So let's talk about Wayne and Crispy Craig and Charlie and Bing and and everything that happens with there. You know, I was so happy to see Crispy Craig again. He definitely is still serving this guardian angel role. Was it just me or did he seem less effective, though, this episode than he did last week? I don't know. He seemed like it was he was he was really helping at the beginning. You know, maybe it, it just has to do with also our our shock and, and happiness of seeing him for the first time last week. He, he's basically there and he's and he's trying to help Wayne to, to sort of stay human. And I don't think that's something we've really seen before. I don't think no, we've ever no. seen where the process gets delayed, where a kid is actually able to, to fight it off. Somehow, if, if they remember parts of their humanity, if they keep the memories of their parents and their good times as a kid alive and, they're, and fresh in, in their heart and in their mind. I think that's a really interesting addition to the mythology in the show at this point. Whereas I think season one spent so much time talking about how parents can be toxic forces in your life and how parents are still trying to figure out their own shit, let alone, you know, trying to be good nurturing people for their children. That That's certainly 18-year-old Vic's experience with Linda and Chris, which is the predominant relationship we get to parents. And you get Charlie Manx on the other side of the equation, or, or really on the same side, saying, parents suck, they are ruining your life, I am, the, I am the best, it is Christmas every day, unhappiness is against the law, leave your parents, come with me. This season has shown the other side of parenting, where parents are good forces for their kids. They do make a difference. They can keep them from turning into demon kids, even if the kid in question doesn't realize it's his father that is talking to him. Oh, my heart. Uh, uh, the, The way Chris and Linda, you know, really step up for Vic as parents this season. Oh, my heart. The, the way Lou steps up as a protector of Wayne, the way Vic is trying to be a good mom for Wayne and maybe make decisions, but she's she's doing it out of a very pure love for wanting to keep him safe. This is the good take on parenting this season against, you know, a Charlie Manx who is unhinged and, and maybe his carnival barker routine is falling apart a bit as a parent it is a refreshing take on parenting and yeah good. do i do like that we got to see crispy craig as proof positive that the process of turning can be delayed even when you're in the wraith that being said how heartbreaking was it to see wayne get back in the wraith as crispy craig is there he's there he's telling him don't do it wayne don't do it don't get back in oh god it, it doesn't sink in until wayne's back in the car and then his face switches you know like that as soon as the door closes and the lock and the lock locks on the wraith, Wayne snaps too and realizes he fucked up again. But how depressing for Crispy Craig as this guardian angel ghost father to see his son get back in that car. That has to be devastating, no? Yeah, uh, it was so hard to watch that moment, you know, because again, it was like Wayne. Wayne is still. He's kind of in between. So he's sort of becoming that devious little shit, you know, that these kids become once they lose all their teeth. But he's also still clinging on to some of his humanity. And I think, like you said, when that door shut, that that snapped and he came back for that moment. It was like, yeah. I fucked up, basically. Poor, poor Daddy Craig. But also, can I just please take a moment to mention that 
our poor Wayne has been running around in his socks since he was first abducted in episode five. I mean, really, Manx? Really, Race? You can't just, like, whip up some footwear in that fancy little glove box of yours, that magical glove box that makes ornaments, that creates things out of thin air that is whatever the kid wants. I'm really disappointed. So I'm just saying there better be some shoes waiting for this kid in Christmas land. Hashtag shoes for Wayne, too. Thank you very much. Preach, sister. (laughs) Preach. I mean, they've made him a real Dickensian Muppet. The bare stocking feet that he is. I mean, he's been wearing like that. Junkyard. <laughs> I mean, just just the hypothermia alone that he must be suffering uh, through the nights and the mornings, even if it's warm during the day. I, I can't believe that wraith holds heat very, very well. No, it may be another dimension. So who knows? Maybe it does hold. Maybe it is toasty warm. But I mean, he has to smell like a fucking ripe sun. He's been wearing that egg, <laughs> that egg pajama spaceship thing that you know yes. that top and. The same pants and everything. Yeah, poor kid, man. Let's get him some, some some shoes. I mean, if you're Wayne, think about the halcyon days of when you used to have uh, ice cream for breakfast with your mother. That's got to be a better existence than this this barefoot orphan bullshit that you're dealing with in the race. So. <laughs> Hashtag shoes for Wayne 2. That is Charlie Manx in the present. Let's get to Charlie Manx in the past. So like we said, we already dealt with Charlie as a young adult in the 20s, the 1920s and 30s. This time we're taking it back. We're taking it way, way back. We're taking it way, way back to the turn of the century. We are in Cripple Creek, Colorado. Cripple Creek, Colorado, you may be wondering, Anna, is actually 142 miles from Gun Barrel, Colorado. Cripple Creek, Colorado is a real place. In 1890, the last great Colorado gold rush kicked off in Cripple Creek, Colorado. It was the site of the last great gold rush in the state. It made it a mining town that continued pumping out gold and other kinds of minerals and ore uh, for the next century into the into the 2000s, into the aughts. Uh, and I believe the mining company actually still operates out there. Obviously, it doesn't have the same output that it used to. But Cripple Creek is a was a real deal mining town. It truly was. Yep. And this is the site of Charlie Banks's childhood. And, and again, just that setting alone already starts to kind of explain a lot and also explains why Fanny Manx is making the kind of living she is making as a as a prostitute, but one who gets to watch her son perform. I don't think Fanny Manx is necessarily the evil mother. What we see of her tonight in her hustling ways, I mean, Charlie has always portrayed her as just an always on her back mother who's just got a guy inside of her 24-7. And that's not really what the deal is. We see her encourage him, uh, you know, know, she's very complimentary to him. Yeah, what was your take on the myth of Fanny Manx versus what we got to see of her tonight? I think Fanny cares for the kid, obviously. Like I said, she she uh, wanted to encourage him, wanted him to feel good, wanted to help him save up his money, and warned him. So, tried to warn him. So, I, I think his, his portrayal of her is definitely quite skewed. I mean, I think, you know, it's just sort of the times a lot of women made their living in that way. I mean, brothels were big businesses, especially in the gold rush towns. Men needed something to do at nights, and they had tons of money on hand. You know, it all kind of makes sense in that way. I think it was kind of an interesting 
way that we get to see how his strong creative powers kind of come about. I mean, none of it's pretty. None of this is pretty. No, but I want to hit on something that you said, because uh, Fanny does warn him when she first learns that he's going to go to work for Mr. Tim. And the first thing she asks is, you know, she had been to his house or if he had kind of done anything. But she says it in a way that parents will ask a kid something without revealing what their concern is. Yeah. But she knows. She We know she knows from this very first scene. We know what Mr. Tim is doing. Is she, any grown man who's looking for lots of boys to come around their house is only doing it for one reason, right? TV e. and movies have trained us that to be wary of this. But Charlie Minx hasn't watched TV and movies like we have. I don't think he really knows at the beginning. I think he figures it out or knows something bad is happening that he doesn't necessarily want to happen to him. Even at the end when Mr. Tim says, basically says it's Charlie's time, you know, and he gets to play a game that the other boys get to play. Charlie Ugh. even tries to serve up Oscar. He's like, I'll go find Oscar or Zion. I'll go get one of those motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> yeah. you don't need to touch me. I'm your right hand man, you know. But if she knew and she says stay away from him, right? Why doesn't she try harder? In the end... It's her saying she knew that everyone knew at the end. It, that's what gets her killed. That's why Charlie kills her. The betrayal he feels in that moment. I don't think he kills her if she doesn't say that or if she had been more proactive in trying to keep him. Away. Maybe Charlie still works for him. But I think Fanny Manx could have done a bit more here as a mother, as an adult, as a mother over what her son was doing. If you know this guy is a pedophile, then you have to assume at some point he's going to turn on your kid, even if in the meantime, your kid is serving up all the other kids. Eventually, he's going to turn his sights on Charlie. He's a young strapping lad. You know, it's inevitable. That's, how do you not do more? How do you not do more if you're Fannie Manx, if you're a mother here? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it definitely plays into the scenarios that we see later on where Charlie is rescuing a kid from a household where he's being neglected because the mom is in bed with somebody. Now, you know, seeing this backstory, it plays so much differently. I do agree that she could have done more. It also talks to maybe what was necessary just to get by and survive in those times. Maybe she she really did have to kind of take all those jobs just to feed him sometimes. I don't want to put a lot of blame on her necessarily. I don't want to put all the blame on her. Maybe she would have, maybe she would have lived. There's a whole room full of grown-ass men here who know what Mr. Tim, the general store owner, is doing to these little boys. And as Oscar points out, my mom works here, too, just like yours does. Like, yeah. where's Oscar's mom when he's getting right, his ass raped right. as a kid? Like, there's a failure of adults here. I'm not putting this at Majorly. Fanny. I'm putting this, I'm putting this at the feet of all the adults. This should not Amen. have been up to Charlie. Charlie was not a grown adult. He was an older kid, sure. Maybe his capitalism should have taken a backseat to what when he realized what he was putting his friends into or even if they weren't friends, what he was putting these young kids through. Yes, I put I put blame there. But also he's a kid and power dynamics are weird when you're a kid. I'm very hesitant to put too, too much blame at him. But I think and on the general level, all of the adults are, are at fault here. Fanny even says we can go to the boss, boss something. I can't remember whose name she says. We'll go to boss something. She knows about Mr. Tim. She And she'll know what to do here when she realizes that Charlie has killed him. Why hasn't the fucking boss done something about it? This is your mining town. You have this guy. You only have a handful of kids and they're all getting you know pedoed by this creep no oh. one else can run the general store jesus christ it <laughs> is a failing of adults exactly here in yeah. yeah very much so 
part of it also, you know, maybe half of it's his anger at her, half of it's sort of his disgust at himself for A, what he allowed Mr. Tim to do, B, his just feeling guilty for the whole Tots for Toys program. No, really. Uh, I, I think, though, that that sort of self-hatred, like one thing that I sort of picked up about Charlie Manx is that he's not very good at putting any blame on himself. He doesn't, he's not very good at taking any responsibility. You right? You think? <laughs> yeah. um, so from a young age, it just seems like he just took that realization that maybe, yeah, maybe he did kind of know what was going on and maybe he did it out of totally selfish reasons. Turned a blind eye so he could get a fucking sled. How gross is that? So he's going to take that out on the very source of the information. His mom right there. I I think building on your point, I think a telling thing is that Charlie, when he's selling Oscar on going to work for Mr. Tim, the first thing he says is that this is essentially a den. This is why I started the episode with this this phrase. You know, this is a, a stinking den of wanton women and faithless men. Those are Charlie's words. I'm positive that is Charlie. That is not a speech he was given. That is Charlie's own view of these, especially the women, obviously, the wanton women. So that's, that is a preconceived notion that predates realizing his mother knew about Mr. Tim and, and his, you know, predatory ways. He also makes a comment to wanting the sled because it's so fast, it'll let him fly right out of this world. Yeah. Two key things that will go on to continue to define Charlie Manx well into his plus century of life are finding a way to escape the world and to, uh, you know, degrading women and finding finding all people generally shitty, all adults generally shitty, faithless or wanton, but women in particular to be betrayers and harlots. These are notions Charlie exhibits before anything bad even happens. That's really important to base psychology. He never really changed. He was always kind of that guy. This moment was definitely... A turning point, you know, a cathartic breaking of Manx. He, because he, he flips out. I mean, like we see it. He, his whole strong creative thing is triggered in this moment. Yeah, I mean, we see the eyes, the angry snowman out the window. What in the world? What in the world is happening? <laughs> so, so, so a couple things here. One, I think I was wondering to myself, why did the why did the the strong creative power trigger the static eyes trigger with the murder of his mother and not the murder of Mr. Tim right before that? Where I mean, that's mm-hmm. a vicious that's a vicious sledding he gives him with those <laughs> sharp blades, you know. Oh yeah. And I think it's because Mr. Tim is not a blood relative. He is just a bad man who, upon who who Charlie takes revenge on for what he has just done to him. And, and I'd like to think out of what he's done to all the other kids, but I think it's mostly about what he just put Charlie through. That's why Charlie kills him. That's not a personal thing. It's just straight revenge. Uh, You know, I, I think when it comes to Fanny realizing that she knew all along that all of the adults knew all along, she is betrayed Charlie. I think that's the crime she's really committed here in Charlie's eyes is that betrayal of a mother, the betrayal of a mother to a child is what sets, because that is a mantra of Charlie's. Oh yeah. All the things he says to Wayne about Vic, you know, they all center around this idea of yours. You know, she's a selfish whore. I mean, you could be talking about Vic or Fanny here if you're Charlie, right? Only thinks about herself. 
only wants money. You know, that's what he accuses Fanny of. You wanted me to be earning money and stuff. You let this go on, even though you knew. That's that's a high betrayal for Charlie, the, the worst crime. And I think that's why it's a significant death. The same reason Voldemort only makes horcruxes of significant deaths in Harry Potter instead of the run-of-the-mill death. I think his strong creative power is triggered here for the first time because it's a significant betrayal and therefore mm-hmm. a significant death of his 100 percent, his own mother two great doctor who moments in this episode for me those evil snowmen outside the window the snowmen in the yes! show oh they always remind me of the evil snowmen yes! from the, the <laughs> dickensian uh doctor who special christmas special i remember that yep but the episode at the very beginning of the episode when bing is praying to god the statue is very reminiscent of the weeping angels of Doctor Who, oh, yeah, which true. are the most terrifying of any villain, any creature in any book, movie ever I have ever experienced. Nothing has ever scared me more than the weeping angels of Doctor Who. So, yeah, this whole episode was bookended by Doctor Who creepy creeper creatures for me. Don't blink. Don't blink. <laughs> do not turn your back and do not blink. Uh, yeah, so Doctor Who, which I'm, I'm a big fan of, was uh, was a total bookend in this episode for me. I just love how this whole backstory, you know, it just it just tells us, like we were talking about, Charlie's motivations and, I mean, everything that he's doing with the saving of kids and, and keeping them in Christmas land so that they could always be children. It's, it's, it's all just compensation for what he did. All of it. One, I mean, we were talking about armchair psychology here. I mean, 100% just textbook compensation for his own horrible actions. And I just love irony because in the process of saving these kids who have been neglected by the adults in their lives, he's still taking their innocence and turning them into monsters. He's, it's the same thing. I think yeah, I, I think it's more proof of he's just not changed. The same way, no. the same re, the same way he's always viewed women as you know harlots. The same way he's always been looking for a way to fly out of this world. He is still using children for his own personal gain. I, I think I think it's a great comparison to make that no matter the hundred plus years between events, he still treats children the same way, which is just proof that Charlie Banks is kind of a born monster yeah. and because and, he's just never changed it wasn't no. like he was a good kid and then got worse he's always treated people this way he's always treated children this way but he convinces himself that it's that it's a good thing that he's he's the hero or at least he's... not at fault even if it's right. not a good thing i think he i think he realizes that what mr tim is doing is bad uh he he's he's pretty down on pedophilia charlie for all of his flaws is is not okay with pedophilia but not enough such that he would inconvenience himself. He only takes action against a pedophile when it literally directly affects him. He's cool with it to go on as long as he's making money because it's his friends going through it, not him. As soon as the pedophile turns on him, he takes a sled to his back or he takes a pipe to his assistant's stomach. The sexual violence, you know, exacted upon him is what is where he draws the line. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie, piece of shit. Always was, always has been. Yeah, I mean, he's always he's always just been this horrible, horrible beast. And honestly, speaking of, of children and innocence lost, Millie, she is just so over Manx's bullshit, and I am so here for it. Oh my gosh, when those Christmas and lights started flickering, I love how she just stormed right up that house, the Candy Mountain. Wild, what did you think about the reveal 
that the house actually contains like all of Manx's deepest fears. I loved it. I thought yeah. it was such a, I thought it was such a great reveal and also explains his denial that that house exists to Millie. Yeah. Because we assumed and we talked about this that he's lying to Millie when he says that the house doesn't exist that that she's imagining it or she's lying. He like turns it on her. But the same way he doesn't know about Crispy Craig in the back of the wraith, maybe Charlie doesn't really know that this house exists. That really turns the whole thing on its ear. Cassie, Ghoul Cassie, Crispy Cassie, Crackleface, Crackle, Crackleface Cassie. That's what we'll call her because her <laughs> face. Crack, Crackleface Cassie is really the exposition fairy in this episode, and I'm fucking here for it. What a great reveal that this house contains all of his deepest fears. Especially when you put together with that creepy, the sledding is best, you know, on the hill by the grove. Oh, God. And that's what he says right after he has him. Uh Uh-huh. That's why that means so much. When he's putting on his suspenders, he says it, which is such a gross scene in itself without Mm. dialogue. Yeah. So now we finally learn the secret of who is behind that door. You know, it's it Mr. makes Tim. so much sense now. The whole house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that his deepest fear is a room you can't even get into. It literally has a locked door ghoul behind it. It, it, it. In some ways, Millie maybe growing up is his worst fear. But the fact that he has this padlocked door that can't be opened is his worst fear. That that tells you the kind of self-centered nature of Charlie Banks, that this Mr. Tim memory represents one of his maybe greatest fears, either the shame or the fear of it repeating again. Really interesting. But the fact that the idea of Millie growing up is one of his greatest fears, what did you think about that? This episode is so well written because all of these stories just completely like hook into each other. Yeah, human Millie. She's she's one of his greatest fears that his gift of eternal childhood to her, not really so much a gift. It, it just it it reminds me a lot about Interview with a Vampire where the young girl is turned but then she kind of goes crazy when she re- realizes that she'll never grow up and be a woman. And we see we see, you know, Demon Millie sort of start to realize that her dad is her also kept her trapped in this form that she'll never change from, she'll never be free from, she'll never know the whole rest of the world that that even, you know, this repressed memory, you know, seems to know more about than, than she does. It's heartbreaking in a lot of ways. It is heartbreaking. The realization that because she plays, right, she plays with the human version of herself for quite a while. Yeah, it, it's when it, it's only after she has conversations with her. And there are some great scenes. Matea Conforti, who we're going to talk to in a little bit, you know, is acting her ass off in this scene, acting against herself. And it's so great to see her play the two versions of Millie. But the dawning realization of that there's a world out there that happens when you turn 16 and you can move out of the house and you can become an adult. Millie kind of, it triggers for her that she'll never experience that, and she had never even questioned it before. But when she walks into Cassie's bedroom and says, that girl is me, that was the real heartbreaking thing for me. The, the real is it, because she didn't even realize that was her. No, it took not her at so first, long. yeah. It took her so long to work out the fear here. What was actually happening is that my you know, father you know, his greatest fear is me growing up and that girl is me. That is a life that I've been denied. And Cassie is all straight talk in this episode. What, what's your take on Cassie, who not only can speak, but has very nice diction for someone who is, you know, crackle-faced. She, she doesn't really sugarcoat 
the faults and flaws of Charlie Minx here. She's not really angry with him either, though. She's just stating facts. Well, she's had Manx's number the whole time. I guess it's, it's is it safe to assume that since he's kind of got this unstable inscape going on that maybe now and then she actually can talk like his repression of her isn't as strong so a little bit more of her can kind of come through i guess that's my take at least i just feel like uh she's kind of wanted to do this for a long time like she's wanted millie to know the truth and it's like she finally is getting to tell her. I just loved when she's leaving the room as the two Millies start giddily grabbing presents and opening them. And she kind of flashes that wry smile like behind her where she's like, you know, you know, she's she wanted this. She knew that this would happen and that she's going to be able to maybe somehow help her daughter out of this situation. She's sort of planting the seed in her in her mind that, you know, your dad has done you wrong, girl. You got to get out of here. And that's the one thing that she's not allowed to do. Millie makes the point to say, what's the one thing dad wasn't want me to do? Leave Christmas land. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think Cassie does a really good job here of laying out facts or at least presents them as facts and trust that Millie, even ghoul Millie, is intelligent enough in this weakened inscape state that that there's enough slack in Charlie's control, maniacal control over yeah. this inscape. There's enough there's enough slack in the grip here that she can lay out facts and let Millie make the decision. Put the, you know, add the numbers together and make her own decisions and calls. I think I think you're right. I think she's laying it out, but not necessarily connecting the dots. Or connecting the dots, but not telling Millie what to do about it. She's just laying it out yes. there as this is what could have been. That girl in there will grow up to be me. You could have been that. You were denied that. And and remember, remember when they were human, you know, Cassie scoffed at Millie wanting to go to Christmas land with Charlie because she's a kid. Of course, who, what, what kid's going to turn down Christmas every day? But Cassie knew that given a chance, her eyes would be opened. Millie's eyes would be opened the same way Cassie's eyes would be opened to her father's bullshit. And that's what he fears most. That's why he's keeping her locked up. <laughs> he doesn't want her to be aware. Yeah. We see the cat pin return. Oh, yeah, in this yeah, yeah. Episode. What did it mean? It seemed important. What does it mean, do you think, that she pinned when she pins it on her her little ghoul smock, her military uniform? I loved it because it was a way to, first of all, you know, physically connect the two because we saw when Millie first went into that house she found that pin and was sort of admiring it and it made me wonder like a was it hers when she was a kid or b was it something of her mom's that she admired that her mom wore this cat pin so yeah I mean it was sort of this nice touch to see the mom pinning it on her uniform as a way of like physically I'll, I'm always here with you almost that's at least what it felt to me. Like it was a way of, of connecting them and Millie can always have her mom with her. I, I think I had the same takeaway. It was almost like the captain, it was uh, almost like a talisman of Cassie, a way of taking her with her, which made me put down in my notes, Crispy Craig needs one of these kinds of things. Because yes. his, his power over, I think what we saw in the drug yard was that his sway over Wayne is only really useful when Wayne is actually in the car. When Wayne is not in the car, he is susceptible to Charlie's words and and persuasion because he doesn't listen to Crispy Craig, you know, when he's yeah. outside the car. It's only when he gets back in the car 
that Krispy Craig seems to have control over him. So he definitely needs to come up with some kind of, you know, he needs uh, the pin that he, he that, that he, he gave the Vic. Pin that he gave Vic. I was oh my just God. about to say he <laughs> needs to give he needs to put that on Wayne somehow so he remembers. Writers get on that. Come on, yeah, we got to get this in. Can we can uh, we reshoot? <laughs> Maybe we'll maybe we'll see. There's a deleted scene at the end of the season that comes on the Blu-ray of yeah. of him putting the pin. He puts the pin oh. on the boots that Wayne is not wearing. Maybe he puts I was going to say socks. there's no shoes, so he's got a pin yeah. on his socks. He puts it on his socks that, that Wayne. Oh, is poor Wayne. His, his feet his feet will be all bloody from the pin <laughs> sticking him in the soles of his feet. But yeah, I, I wrote I wrote my notes. Crispy Craig really is the one who needs a fucking pendant to remember me by, you know, a Coco esque you know, remember me pin to put on uh, Wayne for sure. So yeah, I know important important. I hope I hope we get to see the pin uh, come back again because it did seem significant that now we've seen it twice and that she puts it on her. So yeah. I'd like to see. I'd she's like wearing to see it. some. Yeah, she's wearing it now. So I'd like to see it come into play. I think that would be a great uh, continuation. Just an idea, just to let us know, sort of, you know, its significance. Was it Millie's? Was it her mom's? That's all. Just something little. Because it, it, it was a nice touch. It was a lovely gift. Yeah. Before we wrap up here, I think I think it's important to shout out, because you, we can never do this enough, the amazing makeup artists that work this show. To, oh to make her crackle face, to make Crispy Craig's crispy face, with it looking real, ghoulish and real, but also fantastical at the same time, is no small feat. Mr. Joel Harlow did the makeup for both of them. And uh, our friend Zach Rips did the contact lenses, keeping them safe, making sure our actors' eyes are safe. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that team. Z- Zach's contact lens work, especially for some of these characters, is just out of this world, especially Crackleface Cassie. She has got some crazy eyes when she is Crackleface. Uh, so I, I give them a lot of credit. I, one thing I want to point out, and I think we pointed it out the last time that we saw Cassie and Millie in the house, but the mirror tricks that they use and the way it conveys some of the undertone, unspoken dialogue in the scenes of where they appear normal in the mirror, even though their true ghoul, crackle-faced mm. selves, yeah. you know, are out in the room. But in the mirror, when they're talking, they see, like, their pure selves. It's such good, effective storytelling. And it's just a really cool trick. So great, great uh, shout-out to the director, to the, to the cinematographer, uh, or d- director of photography, you know, for for using those tricks so so well. It's a time tested device in television and movies, but it can be very effective. And I think the way Nosferatu uses it here is super super effective. Yeah, I mean it's subtle. So I, I meant to bring it up too. I mean I really love that moment when Chewie Cassie sort of reveals she's, she's mom. You know, I mean that's when she like recognized her mom oh it makes me want to cry almost there's there's so many layers so many layers i think that brings us to the end of talking about cripple creek this was probably one of our shorter episodes but it was kind of also dense but i think the i think we were able to talk about it more efficiently because there was only really three sections there was no lou and vic and linda and chris that whole crew was not in this episode so a lot happens here in this episode but because it's contained in just really three settings the garage cripple creek in the bat in the past and then in the christmas land house so uh, another great episode the season has continued i think to really keep the momentum forward and continue the world building i feel like we i feel like a broken record or a broken yeah. <laughs> you know every week we're like the world building is fucking amazing this week 
it's and, not letting up. It's keeping us, you know, tense. Yeah, and the tension I'm, is rising, and but it's true. When, when when you add in the Jolene July stuff from last season, we have over a hundred years now of Charlie Manks' backstory. So true, and I that's mean, it's, amazing. And it's something I think that fans of the book and of the race graphic novel have definitely been hoping for and wanting to see is is give us a little bit more of Manx's backstory. Give us a little young Manx. So, yes, we, it was a really, really great ride to see this brought into the show, to see how they've changed it, heightened it, made it sort of even more disturbing in a lot of ways. It's, it's one hell of a ride. I can't believe we only have what three episodes left now the season it's, it's not enough it's not enough we need a season three if you're not on the train yet get on the hashtag nosferatu s3 hashtag and the renew nosferatu hashtags you know if you're on social media talk about the show spread the hashtag let amc know that you want another yes. season of nosferatu. bang on their door like uh, you know just be unrelenting and also don't forget shoes for wayne too and I'm, I mean, I'm not ready to leave this den of wanton women and faithless men. So I, I want some more of it. Uh, I, but, I'm not done my gallivanting. Not at all. But, but uh, stay tuned now, though, because we have a fantastic interview with Millie Manx herself, Matea Conforti. It is her treat. She is, she was uh, at 14. She is much more mature than most adults I know. And I think as an actor has accomplished more than most actors will accomplish in their entire career. So she was an impressive young lady. Uh, I hope you stick around and listen to our interview, which is coming up right now. So I'm Mike Caputo. Uh, that's Anna Hokie, And uh, we host the Strong Creatives Welcome podcast for Nosferatu. Cool. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for taking time out. How is Rona Times treating you being stuck at home? It's definitely not ideal in the situation that we're all in right now, but I'm trying to make the best of it with my family and here at home all the time because normally I would be in and out of the city doing jobs, but right now I'm picking up on some of the hobbies that I would normally do here and I get to spend a whole lot of more time with my family. So I'm happy about that. You're making the most of the time. You know, <laughs> exactly. That's how you do it too. You keep that positive attitude. And, right. And, and yeah. You just, exactly. Very good. Love it. <laughs> you just have to keep going. So you are an extremely accomplished young woman. <laughs> at, at 14, you've probably done more than most working actors and actresses <laughs> have done in their careers. Thank you. Uh, tell us how you go from playing young Anna in Frozen to Millie Minx on Nosferatu, because there's a lot of snow in both productions, but there's really right. not anything <laughs> otherwise shared between the two roles. So can you tell us about how you got involved with Nosferatu in the beginning? They're both definitely based on winter and like how you said, both snow, but completely different ideas. So when I was doing Frozen, I had a couple of, I actually had a self tape for Nosferatu that I was doing. And, you know, it's very rare to get picked up from a self-tape when you're auditioning for anything so it's definitely a different change or like a different role that I've never really done before but I was ready for the challenge and to go from being young Anna to being Millie Manx it's just it's easier for me to have that like quick change in acting range you know you know what I mean mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's good like experience for me and you were doing power at the same time on and off as right. well right but you, yeah that is a lot of different roles and that's a ton of hustle <laughs> definitely that's a lot of versatility you know it must be a lot of fun 
yeah, but I love to do it. So I'm happy with whatever I get. So as long as I'm happy and I'm doing what I love to do, I'm I'm always there for it. Yeah, and it makes a better performance if you're into it too. True. <laughs> now we're in season two and you are like a big mm-hmm. force. You are the leader right. of the Demon Ghoul children of Christmas Land. But is, is horror a genre that you were interested in before in any way? Like, do you like scary stories or books or TV shows or? I mean, for my preference, I get scared so easily. So it's very weird and kind of funny for me to be doing something so gory and so scary. But oh, wow. Yeah. When you're filming or you're when you're on the set of a horror movie, you don't realize how scary it's going to look when it's on TV. So all of the visual effects haven't been added yet. So it's actually not really a scary process. It's actually quite fun to do. I would imagine one of the aspects of that is the makeup process yeah. for you and all of the other kids in Christmas land. Take us through, because this is a common question we hear all the time. Is what is it like to sit in the makeup chair for so long and, and go through that transformation process? Mm-hmm. I mean, for my character, it's not really that long just because all they have to do is pale me down. They have to airbrush some veins on me. They just have to like get me to <laughs> they look like a demon, but... For other characters in the show, they have to use all this prosthetic makeup and they have to do a lot more like intense and more makeup on them rather than me. So I'd say I'd sit in the chair around half an hour, 45 minutes, which like for the show is like a pretty good, decent time. Oh, so you're getting all kind of easy here then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what did it feel like when you found out you were being promoted as a series regular for season two? I was really excited because in season one, Millie Manks didn't have as big of a part. She was like kind of like a mysterious character. Like not a lot of the audience knew what she had or like what her backstory was. So in season two, I was really excited that I got to portray Millie Manx a different side from what the audience has seen in season one. Even though the kids don't really seem to age in Christmas Land, Millie definitely seems older and wiser in season two. Mm-hmm. Did you sit down with Jamie or with Joe or, or any of the, the creatives on the show and talk about how to approach her this season differently? Yeah. So when we were talking about some of the scenes, you know, it the acting level had to be a lot more intense because she is starting to have a lot more thoughts about her father and what Christmas Land really is. And Millie Manx has never really had these kind of thoughts before. So everything had to be new, but also she knew what she was doing in Christmas Land at the same time. Right. Like taking on like a leadership role. Right. More, she's becoming more of a leader. For... More of a mom in that some way too. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, true. And more defiant too of yeah. what her father wants her to do. So yeah, you've got a, a whole sort of complex bag of (laughs) of emotions now that you get to explore as Millie. Let's talk about tonight's episode, though. Episode 7, Gripple Creek. (laughs) What was it like filming scenes with yourself? Doing the scenes where you're Millie Manx and you're sort of human and then you're Millie Manx as the gold child opening presents and everything together. (laughs) How fun was that? It was actually a lot of fun, but it was kind of like, it was weird to see what was happening just because I can't really fit two of me into a scene at the same time. So when you're performing, you have to perform with someone else that like kind of looks like you. So it's hard to play off that other person because you don't really know what they would say as if they were you, if that makes sense. Because they don't have like the same instincts as Millie would because they're not you. It was kind of a difficult process for me just to like imagine that I'm talking to myself. 
But it's so cool to see it on TV because it's like, oh, my God, there's two of me up there. Do you actually go back and watch the show? Because you said you're, you get actually e- scared easily. Have you sat down and watched the episodes you're in or watched the show in general? I have watched the show in general. And for me, like, I haven't gotten scared one bit just because I already know what happens. And I already know the process of making everything come to life on the set. So this show isn't scary to me just because I know all the work and all of the the whole process that it takes to make it look scary, you know? You spend a lot of time working with, with Zach and, and you've worked with Celeste a lot this season on the adult mm-hmm. side. How is that different for you working with them versus when it's just you and the other kids where you're really in the adult role? It, it, it is, does, mm-hmm. does, does the filming feel differently to you just having to play kid versus play adult? in those scenes? I mean, definitely. It's definitely a whole different environment just because when I'm in Christmas land, I kind of have to assume the role of being the leader and everyone is kind of like looking up to me to see what the next action is in Christmas land. But when I'm filming with Zach and Celeste, I think it's totally new for Millie Manx too, just because She's been in Christmas Land for so long and she's always been a leader. To have to look up to someone is kind of a new thing for her. And especially when she meets her mom, that's a totally different it's a new person. It's it's not like that was her mom. It's just she's meeting that person for for herself for like the first time. So when she meets her mom, it's like she has to answer to her now rather than everyone else answering to her. So not just the lines are different, but I think that the environment like between each other is also different. That's a really great insight. Speaking of sort of going around in that house and and experiencing things, you know, sort of new for the first time, do you think that Millie's discovering her father's room of biggest fears will make her more sympathetic to him? Or do you think it's kind of going to make her pull away more knowing that he tried to keep her from growing up, basically? I think that at this point in the show, she is matured enough to know what her father's intentions were at the time. So I feel like that she's going to be confused at first and she's going to realize that, wow, like I could have had this whole life and instead I'm trapped in this one moment. However, I feel like that she's going to love her father no matter what and she'll always be so devout to him and she'll always dedicate herself to him no matter what. I like that. I like that loyal kid with a little streak of defiance in it. Yes. We've seen now, Millie, well, obviously, we've seen you more this season than season one, but we've seen you in mm-hmm. the present, but we've also got a lot of backstory in the season so far. And in this episode tonight, we get to see you transforming back and forth as you kind of talk to your mom, this kind of good angel on your shoulder. When you sit back and you look at the roles, do you prefer playing the ghoul Millie Banks or like the original flavor recipe Millie Banks better? I mean, I feel like I would, I think I would rather play the gory, dangerous Millie Manx just because she has so much backstory to her and she has so much more emotion, I feel like. And the acting level is always so intense for her and everything is just one step after the other. Like she has no plans for her future. She's just kind of following her instincts. And I just think that normal Millie Manx already has her whole life planned out and she's just an ordinary girl that you would see during that time. So I just think I would I would rather play a gory, dangerous Millie Manx in my preference. 
<laughs> I love it. I was going to say, just... that is right up Anna's uh, alley. You answered the question exactly how she wanted you to answer it. You, you, you kind of did. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> but she's also got that freedom. And there's something, you know, yeah, refreshing yeah. about that, of That's not true. being restricted, you know, or being controlled, that, that she can just sort of flutter along with the wind if she wants to now. It's kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're watching the demon version of you react to the idea of going on a date with the dolls and kissing. <laughs> it, it looked like someone put like a dead fish under your nose. It was just so funny. It was, it was so far. Like, why would you on earth do that? It was great. Yeah, she has no idea what, what the real world is like. It's like her first time hearing about all this stuff. So she's like, ew, dating. What? No. <laughs> I love it. Well, speaking of, you know, are you more of a ghoul Millie or original Millie? Do you think you're more of an Anna or more of an Elsa? Hmm. I think when people meet me in person, they would say I'm more of an Anna just because I'm more like carefree and I don't really, I don't really think before I do. So I don't have much hesitation in my life, but really I love to care for other people and I love being around my family a lot so I think I think I'm more of both like I have a good mix of both well you've played both too so I mean you've really gotten to have the best of both worlds true. really exactly when you look back on obviously filming as rap you sit back and think about it what what are some of your favorite experiences in filming the series either in the actual work or just like behind the scenes experiences that you had on set I think learning how to do some of the stunts that I do on the show is really fun because it's it's cool to see how little work and how subtle a movement may be can look so big on screen how just anything so subtle can really impact the whole show so that learning experience for me has really changed my input on how I can do other jobs or how I can do other episodes differently in in this show that's great. You know, you're, you're looking at it, too, as a learning experience, mm -hmm. which is really important. We actually have one question here that we always mm -hmm. ask everybody who comes on the Strong Creatives Welcome podcast, and that <laughs> is, <laughs> what would your inscape be if you had one, and what would your knife be? Ooh, I think my inscape would be the beach, because... I love the beach nice. so much. And uh. I wish I were there right now. Just <laughs> yes. like in the sun and to just like not have any worry at all. And my knife, I think, would be a skateboard. I love to skateboard a lot and I skateboard nice. around my town a lot. I think I could skateboard into the beach pretty easily. <laughs> I like that knife That's a fantastic. lot. Very groovy. Honestly, just makes me feel more relaxed thinking about the beach, too. So <laughs> that totally works for me. I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> really, like, just relaxed, groovy kind of vibe, that whole yeah. thing. Love it. Love it. After tonight, there are three episodes left. The, the series is kind of coming to a head. Mm -hmm. Without being too spoilery, if you could use, uh, summarize what's left in the season in three words, what would your three words be for the season? Do they all have to connect, or should I say, like, like three individual uh, However you like, like a sentence? Okay. No, it could be three. It could be three separate words for sure. Okay. So one word I would say is intense for sure. <laughs> I would say kind of sad. And I would say intriguing. That's a good way to put it. Ooh, intriguing. There you go. I like it. That's one of the better answers that we've gotten too from that question. I think so. <laughs> yeah. 
love it. I love it. Intense, sad, and intriguing. I'm ready. Are you yep. though? Is anyone really ready? I don't know. That <laughs> I don't know. Ready. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's ask one more about favorite games. Do you think you mm-hmm. would like better Scissors for the Drifter or Bite the Smallest? Hmm. I think Bite the Smallest has more action in it, but Scissors <laughs> for the Drifter, I feel like, is more gory. But I think I'd rather play Bite the Smallest because it just looks like a fun game to tag at first, and then you're just eating someone the next second. <laughs> I. <laughs> You also have the benefit of not being the smallest. I mean, that's... That's true. That's a big person's answer you've just given there, so... Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'd rather watch someone get eaten by being the person being eaten. I'm going to take a total detour here. I'm from New York. I'm a huge Broadway head. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm a fan of yours. I've listened to the Frozen soundtrack a ton of times with my son. We're big fans. (laughs) When Broadway opens back up again, what would be a show, if you had your pick, you didn't even need to audition, you just needed to walk into a role what would be a role in a show you'd want to be in well i mean honestly right at this time i'm just kind of hoping that everyone can get back to broadway you know safely and soundly just so that we can have a show to open right now like i miss being on broadway a lot and i think that any show that would come my way in the future i would be happy doing because i love being on stage and i love performing and if i can do a show where everyone is safe and everyone's happy i'll do it that's a good answer well we have definitely hope that it comes back soon so you can get back on stage again yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> oh i just wanted to mention i was on set back in december and i got to actually see you work mm. Yeah, but I can't talk about it because it was episodes 9 and 10. (laughs) But I was hiding out and I, you know, I let everybody work and I thought I would see everybody the next night. And I just, I loved how into it you got. But again, I I can't mention the scenes. Don't you kind of like that sword? You seem to like that sword a lot. I love that sword. I love that sword. You pull it out, but but more impressively, you actually put it away pretty smoothly. Yeah. yeah. How much did you spend it's, like playing around with it? It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to put it back in as smooth as you take it out because you like you have to look a specific direction while also trying to put it in. So I'm like looking away. I'm like, and then I might miss the hole where you put it in. So it's just <laughs> it's very hard process. Well, you make it look good and effortless. <laughs> good job practicing that and getting that in. Thank you. Of all the powers that we've seen on the show, you could have Vic's, you know, shorter way to find lost things. You could have Charlie's creation of Christmas land. You could have the hourglass man's mind control power, the tile, Maggie's tile power. If you, Matea, were able to have any of them, which of those powers would you take for yourself and use? Hmm. I think I would take mind control because there's so much you can do with that. But also I feel like I would also want the tiles so I can know what would happen in my future. But then I don't really want the tiles because then I would kind of like be living in fear sometimes. So I think I would use mind control. I like that too. I don't know. You may not like the answer you get from the tiles. I mean, the hourglass man, he learned that last week. He did not like the answer he got. Exactly. It it ended poorly for him. Mm -hmm. Everybody likes the hourglass man. Everybody likes his power. Yeah. I mean, if you can control (laughs) minds, that's kind of (laughs) cool. little bit i mean honestly just to get people to wear a mask i think would be you know i would use that power just to to do that would be awesome (laughs) matea you have been fantastic you are uh, you are like a total pro and wonderful guest thank Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us thank you for having me we really appreciate it you've been a blast thank you i hope we get to talk to you again sometime take care yeah Yeah, me too
Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Thank you for listening every week. Thank you for making this one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. Thank you for sharing feedback about the podcast in the Facebook group and on social media. It means a lot to me. I, I'm, I want to speak. For, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Anna, but I will say I suspect it means a lot to her, but she can. Nah, I don't speak, care. No, you can speak for yourself. <laughs> No, tell, really, tell the people what it means it. to you, Anna. Tell it them everything. No, it's really appreciated. I've not done this in a really long time. It's been a lot of fun just interacting with everybody about the podcast and being able to talk to everybody and, and, and just share the love of the show even more each week with you guys. So look, if you're listening, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts. I guess we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank Bye, you, guys. everybody. Oh, and next week is called Chris fucking McQueen. So yeah. don't miss next week's episode. Yeah, yeah. It's... If you have a pool, start a betting pool on how many times <laughs> Anna will say Chris fucking Chris McQueen fucking... next episode. Yeah. seriously, y'all, buckle the fuck up. So. It's coming. It's coming. All right, guys. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com.